A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, do you like this podcast? If you do, then please post a review on iTunes, uh, like one of our listeners called Copper Knickers, who writes, I listen to the podcast while going for my weekly walk in a forest in my house in rural Scotland, which feels a million miles away from the Westminster bubble, but I never feel alienated by Red Box, despite being a moderate Scottish nationalist if there is such a thing. Uh, Apparently they appreciate it a lot. So if you're listening on iTunes right now, why not post a review and tell us where you are listening and you'll get a mention next week. And if you like the podcast and want to read me in your inbox every morning, you can sign up to my free morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. Right, now down to business. A week on from Theresa May's hugely successful cabinet reshuffle, I thought it'd be good to see how things look now that the dust has settled, although the collapse of Carillion and its hundreds of contracts across Whitehall has created rather a lot of new dust too. Joining me this week are three of the Times' finest policy specialists to take us behind the scenes on their beat and what the next few months might hold. Rosemary Bennett, education editor, has a new Secretary of State to get to know and wonders what it might mean for our schools. Chris Smythe, the health editor, almost got a new Secretary of State, but instead Jeremy Hunt dug in and added social care to his already overflowing in-trade. But first, Graham Payton, transport correspondent, who almost got a new Secretary of State to pursue when Chris Grayling was appointed Tory party chairman for 27 seconds on Twitter, but then stayed in post, at least for now. So this is Graham Payton. Farewell, Carillion. And with it, it seems, the reputations of civil servants and ministers who continue to award them lucrative contracts as the company teetered on the brink. Now, Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary, who recently handed Carillion a multi-million pound deal to build HS2, seems to have come in for particular criticism. He was already under fire over the apparent bailout of failing rail companies on the East Coast mainline and the chaotic handling of this year's fair rise when he uh, cleared off to Qatar, just as it was announced. So, is Mr Grayling's career about to hit the buffers? So, Graham, Carillion is such a monster of a sort of story. It's almost Brexit-esque in that it seems to cover every aspect of political life, public life and, you know, the private sector as well. But the, the one of the particular questions is that even when it became clear that Carillion was in trouble last summer, even after that, after I issued a profit warning, Chris Grayling signed off this £1.4 billion contract to help build HS2. Is he is he really in trouble on this, do you think? It's certainly right that he faces criticism on it. The problem is is that um, if you actually look behind the decision-making process that awarded this contract to Carillion, it exposes much bigger issues across the civil service. But ju- just, to, just to give you a bit of um, context to what actually happened, 
This was a £1.4 billion contract, part of a much bigger £6.6 billion, I think it was, contract award across the first phase of HS2 from London to Birmingham. Carillion were part of a, a joint venture with two other companies. They got £1.4 billion for their little bit, of which Carillion got about, was going to get about £450 million. Now, to be clear, this isn't money that will actually go to Carillion until about 2019, so very little money has actually gone. Yeah. So this, we're all talking here about uh, hypotheticals, should they have got it or not. The issue is, the way that I've been told, is that what you had is a load of um, officials from HS2 Limited, the company that's delivering the high-speed line on behalf of the government, sat in a locked room for a year and went through all the various bids and then came out of that locked room um, a week after Carillion issued their um, profit warning and effectively presented the Secretary of State with a list of contractors and it was therefore down to Chris Grayling to either sign off on that list or say no and do it all again. My understanding is that he wasn't allowed to just simply pick out Carillion and say no, we're not going to award that bit to Carillion, the rest of it's all fine. If he rejected Carillion, the idea was that he rejected the whole list, so therefore the advice was very much to accept Carillion and the list with the proviso that there was sufficient safeguards should Carillion go under. He signed off on that. You know, I think, therefore, the question is a bigger one across government about how those civil servants came up with those with those lists and the due diligence that was done on Carillion in the Doesn't first place. Doesn't say much for the decision-making capacities of the HS2 bosses, who well, are Britain's best-paid public <laughs> servants, let's not forget. Uh, absolutely not. I mean, and, you know, HS2 have got form here. I mean, they, they issued a contract um, to CH2M Hill um, a few months previously that they consequently had to bin because of a conflict of interest because the engineering company had actually seconded their their chief executive to be to run HS2 limited so there is bigger questions here like i say around around how these contracts are awarded and, and you know and this is something that perhaps to throw it to my colleagues here goes across government because clearly there was issues admittedly not um, in relation to the profit warning but if you read um, what we what we're led to believe happened with all the hedge funds they knew that this that Carillion was going to be in trouble as early as 2013 well contracts were still handed out in every area as far as I can see the MOD health education justice right the way through that period up until the present day and is there, a, is there an issue do you think with a if it's gone through the due diligence and the process and that's what the officials are saying, it's very difficult for a politician to sort of then say, oh, actually, this company looks a bit dodgy. I think, you know, I and think that opens right. up a can of worms. If, if a, a government minister, if it gets out that a government minister has turned down a contract because because of a profits warning, the risk is the company then goes into a death spiral or, or it certainly chips away when the finances are quite fragile and who in politics wants to be associated with <laughs> banging the final nail in the coffin of a massive British employer. And particularly because, although last summer it was a profit warning, it wasn't, you know, other companies have profit warnings and Absolutely. turn things around. It wasn't guaranteed that we were going to head in this direction. But why do you think it is going that Chris Grenning is coming for so much criticism is it because once you start attracting bad news you sort of attract more of it and it like as you were saying at the beginning it comes after the welfare's rising is out of the country the problems of the east coast mainline the well, fact he was going to be sacked possibly or moved or whatever i think that's it i think he's become a bit of a bit of a target if you like in recent months i mean it all started perhaps last summer he he made quite a what what seems to be a bit of an error over when he cancelled the electrification 
have a load of railway lines, one in South Wales, one in the East Midlands and one in the Lake District on the same day practically that he announced that he wanted to press ahead with Crossrail 2 through London. It, it attracted a lot of, <laughs> a lot of criticism about, um, about where his priorities were. Um, and then there's been other questions over his handling perhaps of the, of the Southern Rail debacle and the extent to which he's maybe um, failed to pacify the unions in that regard. And also then we had the rail fare rise last week where admittedly it was a fare rise that we'd known about for over a month but still it was a quiet news day and on the day that the rail fare rise came in and the broadcasters were all leading on that news he decided to fly off to Qatar which didn't look very good. <laughs> so I think he's I think he's become a bit of a symbol for, for, this, um, for this story. I think perhaps on, in this case the, um, it's perhaps unfair criticism over, over Carillion and... Um, the extent to which he's personally culpable, I, I question. And do you think he survives? I think he said, well, the fact that he wasn't reshuffled, or yeah. he was for 27 seconds <laughs> and then shuffled back in. I mean, the, the fact is, Theresa May's clearly got, um, holds great sway in, in his abilities, yeah. given that um, she had the opportunity to sack him and didn't, given that he's frequently rolled out in front of the broadcasters to talk on Brexit issues, suggests to me that he's not going anywhere, anywhere home soon. And it's worth noting, uh, I went back through the history books to look at how long transport secretaries last and with the exception of Patrick McLaughlin and Alistair Darling he is the longest serving transport secretary since the turn of the millennium it seems so wow. so he's already um, he's already lasted a bit longer than some of his predecessors because it tended to be a job that you went into on the way up or on the way down or on the way down <laughs> and yeah. he's he's probably on the way down I and mean, he's been Everywhere he's been hasn't been... A, I mean, when he was at Justice, it wasn't a runaway success. Down very slowly. Yeah, very, very <laughs> yeah. slow decline. But yes. he, he is close to Theresa May. He ran her campaign, didn't he? He That's did, because yes. there was a lot of discussion, and we'll come on to Jessica Green mm. in a sec, but there was a lot of discussion in the run-up to the reshuffle because he proposed her and she was seconded by Justine Greening. Mm. And at one point, both of them were being tipped for the sack. There's one thing we know with Theresa May. The people she likes are the people she's known for the longest mm. and have shown her loyalty, you know, from the very beginning. So it was interesting that Justine got the push. And yes, absolutely. I suppose the interesting thing about Theresa May is she's very, she is loyal to those she considers her friends, but she's also vengeful when you cross her. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And I think as long as Chris, you know, keeps on the right side of that, that mark. Um, uh, then he will survive. Um, let's move on then. As we as we've moved on to uh, education, let's look at Justin Green's departure and who is new on the beat of Rosemary Bennett. It's all change at the top in education with a virtual unknown, Damien Hines, the new education secretary. Like his officials, we are all trying to piece together what he might do first, but have very little to go on beyond the fact he went to a Catholic grammar school. Owing his dramatic rise to Theresa May, he will likely to be far more in Hockton number 10 than his predecessor, Justin Greening. She spent the last six months dismantling practically the entire education chapter in the Tories' 2017 manifesto. Hines will be expected to put that back together again. So this is exciting for you to presume as a, as a specialist. You get a new, a new cabinet minister, one that you haven't annoyed yet, you haven't written anything to upset them. How, how did you greet the news? Were you surprised? Well, it, it, as you say, it's a great moment. It's a moment of excitement. What is really strange about this appointment is no one knows him. Education is a real jewel in the crown of the Cabinet. Uh, it, it's a good news job. You're not constantly firefighting. You can have your picture taken with um, lots of attractive school children. Um, there's lots of good things to do. And Damien Hines comes from nowhere. He's had one uh, junior ministerial job, I believe. He was on the Education Committee. He doesn't seem to have much of a following on the backbenches. 
where did he come from and what do we know about him? Virtually nothing. It was interesting. I spoke to someone who I think had previously worked in the education department and they said that when Damien Hines first arrived as an MP, he just kept on banging on about social mobility and really sort of made a beeline for ministers and spads and all that sort of thing. So there is a there is a sort of vague sense that this is an area he's interested in. There is, but social but not mobility... not in what way. Yes, exactly. Social mobility is such a big and amorphous subject and a very, very tricky one because we appear to be going backwards. Yeah. And who's not in favour of social mobility? <laughs> so uh, that's great. If he's interested in it, it'll, the, the, the real thing, the real challenge is what is he actually going to do about it that is deliverable in a relatively short period of time. At the beginning, you, you mentioned grammar schools because obviously this was the Tories' flagship offer mm. in the general election campaign last year, which didn't go entirely according to plan. It no. was promptly ditched afterwards. We knew that Justin Greening wasn't a fan. Absolutely, yeah. Do we think that it was ditched because of the election campaign or because Justine wasn't a fan? I mean, could it make a comeback I th- I, realistically? Well, I think it's because of the numbers and the comments. Yeah. That really, that you know, to change the law to lift the ban on grammar schools would be a very, very uh, bitter debate. And I just don't think they've got the numbers. However, there's a lot of grey areas around the law so uh, many many more grammar schools have expanded and created new places on site buildings going up within the school grounds Uh, and then we have the question of annexes, uh, grammar schools building uh, extensions which look a bit like new schools uh, maybe uh, next door but maybe five miles away This is is where we have the the famous case in Kent where it was the other side of town and is that a new school or is it just an extension of the existing Well exactly but they've got their way so uh, there's a lot you can do without changing the law and I suppose when we don't know he went to, uh, Damien Hines went to a grammar school we imagine he's going to feel favourably towards it Well there's one thing we know about people who went to grammar schools they always think that, is anybody else here go to a grammar school? You went to a grammar yes. school. People who go to grammar schools are always obsessed with the idea that everybody must go to one. Uh, well, no, I'm from Northern Ireland where uh, there's a very different system where half the children actually go to grammar schools and half go to secondary modern schools. Okay. So it's a very, very different system. Um, I personally don't think they'd work anymore because there are just far too many sharp-elbowed middle-class parents who'll get their kids in. So uh, they'll do nothing for the poor. It's one of those things that really uh, shows what, what do you actually mean when you talk about social mobility, doesn't it? I mm. mean, do you think of social mobility as pulling up some intelligent people from the sort of masses below, or do you mean about put, moving everybody a bit further up and getting better jo- jobs yes, for them? Yes, everybody loves the idea of social mobility upwards, but nobody really likes the idea of the di- yeah. downward yeah. social mobility. The problem is that grammar schools is a diversion, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, we're mm. talking about at best a few hundred schools uh, yes, yes. and it's not going to solve the the bigger picture and it's not going to we're not going to have legions of grammar schools being built in areas where there currently isn't any selective education yes it's 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 the g spot for tory for many tory mps <laughs> i think that is why it just we, they keep coming back to it but yeah they're the, one of the, the far more uh, a far more concern is the growing north-south divide where London and the M25 have fantastic schools on the whole and getting better by the year and the coal spots as Justin Greening identified them in the north uh, where they can't attract fabulous new teachers and uh, they're just kind of drifting drifting downward. Is the experience of, in lo- of what's happened in London transferable? Because it you go going back a sort of generation the schools mm, in London absolutely. were bad and nobody they wanted to teach them there. And they they have been told, I mean, with lots of money and leadership and all of that sort of thing. Is it is it that transferable to the? I would say only spots? in part. I think the real problem is getting your bright, uh, new, enthusiastic graduate teacher 
to go to Hull, to go to mm. Barnsley. Uh, they want to live in cities because they're young and they want to have a good, good social life. Teach First has done fantastically well in getting these bright yeah. graduates into Manchester and London and Birmingham. They've really struggled with the coastal areas where, where for example, where schools are very poor. Part of the problem, though, is I mean, education is so riven by dogma. I mean, the fact is that if you look back to what actually worked in London, it was mainly the fact that the schools all came together and shared experiences and shared staff. And it was a, it was, it was very much a, it was very much a, a cross-city drive to, to share what works and push forward in that way. Mm. The dogma since, or the, 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 the lie of the land since, has been competition and putting schools up against each other, which mm. very much the Tory way. And the idea that the, the London trans the, the idea of transferring what happened in London elsewhere just doesn't quite fit with that um, with that current thinking, does it? Yes, yeah, so I suppose you, it, it can happen in other cities, but it's not perhaps going to happen in regions in the same way. Mm. Yeah. And of course, I mean, this is true of lots of government departments, but particularly education, where there's a lo- there's a sort of always a retail offer from a minister who wants to make news, but the the time lag on that and seeing the results of it. I mean, we're only now about to see. Uh, 16-year-olds go through the GCSE reforms, which Michael, Michael Gove, Gove announced absolutely, uh, yes. with great fanfare. And so yes. there's always this sort of lag of, we won't really know for a really long time whether or not Damien Hines has any impact. Absolutely. And and, and the other interesting thing is, is fashions change so quickly. <laughs> there's nothing more faddish than education. So already with the new A-levels that are, that are coming through, there's already a bit of a kickback thing. Hold on, these are so narrow. Do we really want children at the age of 16 choosing just three subjects? So already the new, much uh, more uh, difficult A-levels which require really you to pick three sciences or three humanities are being criticised. But that, even that's a reverse because when I did them there was this sort of expansion you were sort of nudging between four or five and the ASs and then they've cut all the ASs back and they're going back to Absolutely. The, the wheel the is three. just frequently yeah, just reinvented. So Graham yeah. you used to do education as a beat. What what sort of sticks in your mind from when you were doing it that survives or does nothing really survive that well, long? Well it's, it's interesting about the about the extent to which we keep going over the same ground because I remember a decade ago the answer to this 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 sort of narrowness was to go for breadth so they introduced Tony Blair introduced the diploma program which is going to be a new qualification which was going to be sort of like the international baccalaureate like some of the diploma qualifications on the continent where you where you learn a broad sweep of subjects and you don't specialize too early well you know the fact is we came to 2010 they Tony Blair wasted billions, absolutely billions, developing this thing. You know, these poor kids, hundreds of children were incentivised to take these things. And what happened in 2010, the, the, the programme was completely scrapped. No one remembers it. And now we went straight back to the other, the alternative, the yes. exact opposite direction. It's so polarised. Yeah. It's so polarised. It's from one extreme to another with very little middle ground. Mm. Um, and as, as you said, this succession of education secretaries wanting to make their mark. And, and, you know, repeatedly the unions come up, as, as with health, the unions keep coming up with, well, we should, we should, take, it out, we should take it out of politics, we should have a, a commission that can, that, can look at, um, that can look at it in the whole. And you can see, where, you can see some attractionness to that, because you are talking about children's education. Yes, they you know, only get you, one education, mm. yeah. But then you only need one thing to go wrong, whether it's a whole, you know, year group to come out with a load of terrible results, and then 
As journalists, we all demand something must be done, exactly. so the yeah, politician is forced to do something. can't be taken out of No, 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 you can't. <laughs> you can't. I'm just saying you understand why people call for it. No, in, in reality, also, poli- policy experts, you know, they always obviously want, want, want that, but they do also keep coming up with their new, I- new, new, new ideas. New, ideas, yes. Not so new ideas. And just, just before we move on to health, um, one of the things that always sort of slightly fascinates me about education particularly is the, the influence that teachers have and the, the relationship between the Tories and teachers has been up and down all the time. Mm. I mean, it was particularly bad under... Uh, Gove. Michael Gove, Gove, and he had to be moved before the 2015 election campaign. Uh, something like is it 8% of teachers voted Tory last year? I mean, Justin Greening thinks that she might have been starting to turn that around by just not antagonising all the time. Yes. Um, so, the, uh, Obviously, the particular issue with teachers is they do, I know from having parents' evenings, they do say, oh, that bloody Mr Gove and his bright ideas. And that has an influence that maybe a doctor with a train driver just don't have on the on the public. Yes, and I think as well teachers tend to be professional whingers <laughs> and they think their job is much harder than ever. I'm not, I'm not saying for a second teaching isn't demanding and hugely difficult, but lots of other jobs are demanding and hugely difficult and uh, teachers do take whinging to new levels. Wow. <laughs> says the education editor of the Times. Well, there's the quote, there's the <laughs> quote for the advert. Before Rosemary declares war on anyone else, in just a second, we'll be talking about the NHS and whether anyone can solve the problem there. We'll be back after these short messages. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome back to the Times Red Box podcast. I'm joined by Graham Payton, Rosemary Bennett, and this is Chris Smythe. Now, winter for the NHS is now following the same trajectory as the average Britain's New Year's resolutions. Every year we promise we are going to do better this time, but by the second week of January it's all wearily familiar. This year doctors are flinging around terms like war zone and third world A&Es, while the heads of half Britain's emergency departments wrote to Theresa May telling her that patients were dying on corridors, so the health secretary got a promotion. So Chris, you came on, I think, the podcast in August... To, right. uh, where we discussed that uh, warnings about the winter crisis were getting earlier and earlier. It was like the Christmas decorations going up early. And all too predictably, it came to pass that we, uh, we find ourselves in a winter crisis. On the sort of winter crisis-ometer, how bad is it compared to previous... Well, what, what's happened in the past few years is it's just got a little bit worse every year. In the 1990s, it was utter chaos. You know, Labour pumped in huge amounts of money, doubled the NHS budget, and there's graphs for Google searches or, or press searches earlier than that for winter crisis, huge in the late 90s, disappears in the 2000s, and then in the last few years, it started to emerge again. And, you know, the uh, Academy of Medical Royal Colleges represents you know, all of Britain's professional leaders said yesterday it's just going to carry on getting worse on this same trajectory every year unless something changes. And in a sentence, what is it that needs to change? Well, Jeremy Hunt added the word and social care to his title. And, <laughs> and this is a good place to start. Right. Because, you know, this was seen by some as a gimmick because the Department of Health has always had responsibility for social care. But... I, 
I think it's more than that for two reasons. One is because he got his hands on reform of social care, which he'd previously sat with a cabinet office and been booted into very long and very thick grass after the Tories' election debacle. And partly because one of the reasons why social care for the elderly has been cut so much over the last year is because the NHS is such a totemic brand. Everyone wants to protect the NHS, but no one knows what social care is you cut there. But actually, they're so intimately linked, umbilically linked, as Jeremy Hunt says, that you do need to solve those problems together. And so one of the, the problems has been, although the NHS budget has been protected and has gone up a tiny bit in real terms, the money which goes to councils for social care has been slash loads, so more old people end up in hospital, and when they're in hospital they can't get out, Absolutely. which hogs the beds. And-, and it's interesting that the main demand of those A&E doctors, which is not, as you'd expect from doctors, more money for the NHS, but more money for social care so they can get those people out of hospital and, and free up beds. Now you've been, um, unlike Rosemary, who's just got a new one, you've been lumbered with Jeremy Hunt for a long time. He's on course now to be the longest serving health secretary yeah. ever. I mean, it was quite unusual. I think some people were a bit surprised that he, for a cabinet minister to beg to stay in the job, which is currently embroiled in a crisis. Were you surprised by that? It's interesting sign of, first, I suppose, of Theresa May's sort of antenna that apparently she had not been sounding him out about whether he wanted to leave, just assumed that he would he would want to do so or be willing to do so. And, you know, it, w- what you get from him is, you know, his father was an admiral. He said, I won't, you know, I can't desert a, a sinking ship in this in this time of crisis. Uh, and it's interesting. I think he was quite surprised when he got this added responsibility taking over social care. And I think, you know, he does have the chance to do something quite substantial now, whereas if he'd left now, I think his, his legacy would not have looked quite so rosy. Leaving in the middle of a crisis yeah. doesn't, look, doesn't look brilliant. What are your hopes... How, how optimistic are you about something actually happening on social care? Well, you, you're getting all these talks again at the moment about a Royal Commission, cross-party agreement. The, the problem is there's not a, there's no lack of agreement. Everyone already sort of agrees what needs to be done. NHS and social care need to be brought together and more money needs to be found for them. But how you do that is, <laughs> is the difficult bit and it's hard to see you're going to get a, a, a cross-party consensus on that. Uh, and, you know, this was something that we faced before the 2010 election when there was cross-party talks when the Tories promptly killed them by coming out and saying they were planning a death tax to, on your estates when you die. And, you know, that was a quite an effective political attack line. But, you know, at least one Conservative figure said to me, I sort of wish we hadn't done that now because that looks like quite a good idea in retrospect. By comparison to all the others that they've, they've, they've tried out. And, of course, I mean, sitting, we've got health, education and transport. They're big policy areas. They're all quite expensive and there's not a lot of money around. So how do you sort of try to solve that problem? Could this be truly radical? Could health actually take over the provision of social care? Well, it, it could. I mean, the, the political logic of boosting social care up the agenda is that it, it starts to get more traction. I mean, the, the, the briefing as it is at the moment is that the funding mechanism is not being looked at uh, in a more, more radical way in the reforms at the moment. That could, in theory, change. But it is going to be a very difficult one for Jeremy Hunt. I mean, he's someone who's talked about having leadership ambitions. Essentially, he has just volunteered for a job of telling elderly Tory activists that they're going to have to contribute more to their own care and that's not going to go down well, whichever mechanism you use to find that money. And that, that assumption that all the old Tory voters won't like it isn't just a sort of hypothetical. We know that because they tried it less than 12 months ago and the uproar in that sort of 48 hours after Theresa May announced her social care floor, not cap, was that yes, right? Yes, exactly. And the problem was it was a floor, not the cap, and, you know, in the sign of the debacle, wasn't it? And then Jeremy Hunt had not been consulted about that policy, uh, you know, in, in, until it was put in there. Uh, and, and there is, you know, there is a positive argument to make is if you do have a cap uh, to avoid the sort of terror of these catastrophic costs that some people are lumbered with, people might think, well, I'll be willing to, to sort of pay a bit more as a form of insurance there. Um, but it did burn them quite quite badly. And actually part of the problem is, and this is true of all policy areas, mm. 
if you drop an idea out of the sky, having not in any way laid the ground, I mean, actually now is probably a quite a good time to start talking about. Well, some ministers do say that about social care. It's like the the upside of the election debacle. Everyone suddenly realised how bad the but situation is. But also in the is. middle of a winter crisis, yeah. there is a problem, and then you can start talking about what the solution might be. So you just drop it out of the sky. A bit like grammar schools was just sort of here's a, here's an idea, and this is what we're going to do. The fact is, I mean, a lot of this has come back to what we're prepared to pay and what mm. we're prepared to get out. I mean, it has great parallels with transport where rail fares have just gone up um it's because the the burden for funding the railways is now increasingly falling on individual passengers the amount of taxpayer subsidy has gone down and down and the amount that we pay has gone up and up which a lot of people would say is reasonable given that the vast majority of people who use railways are those in the southeast people commuting to work why should motorists in the north of england subsidize railways in the southeast of england well you know likewise with our roads um road uh, fuel duty is going to go down as we all start to drive electric cars. Well, we need to start to consider, well, how else do we pay for our roads? You're going to have to inevitably move to some sort of um, road toll charging sort of system, but that's unpalatable to the individual. It doesn't yes, it is pay, amazing so. how resistant, given how many years we are after Thatcher, how resistant we are to individuals paying for things. Look at the round tuition fees. I would couldn't have predicted a year ago that the future of tuition fees would be up for debate and now this is precisely one of the things Damien Hines is going to be looking at. A system that actually worked is now potentially going to be dismantled. And I think the idea, as somebody who didn't go to university and I've written very angrily about this in the paper before, the idea that if you've got £11 billion sloshing around that you could spend on something, the best thing to do with it is to give middle-class students a free degree. Who will have well-paid jobs. Yeah, which is just, I just think is extraordinary. But whether you could spend it on health or early years education or making my train line journey into London a bit better. The idea that the, the tuition fee should be a priority is It is mad. extraordinary how we default to the government should pay for that. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. Just before we, we finish, and I should have probably pre-warned you of this, if you hadn't got the Secretary of State you've got now, is there anyone that you'd have liked to have had? I mean, it would be hard to turn down Boris. That would be interesting. <laughs> Boris at health? What could possibly? Be? <laughs> exactly. Well, well exactly. he's been promising the health more money again Exa- exactly. this week. He says the number on the side of the bus should have been even higher. It would only be poetic justice if he uh, was having in the having service. covered education for as long as I did before doing transport. It was very entertaining, perhaps, to see how Michael Gove handled the teaching unions. I'd love to see how Michael Gove handled <laughs> handled the RMT. I think well, it would be. I think a he's war. he is a born again eco warrior, Defra, and not necessarily looking for move. What, what about you? I am holding out for Jacob Rees-Mogg. Jacob Rees-Mogg at education, yep. just teaching seventeenth century history <laughs> all day. Yeah. That would give something teachers <laughs> really whinge about. <laughs> Don't open up that wound again. Um, right, good. Well, if there are any teachers listening, do let us know what you think. Tweet us at Times Redbox or email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, do remember you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, from Rosemary, Chris, Graham and me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.